Today's scripture reading is from Genesis 2, 4 to 5, 15 to 25. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. It is especially days like this where we get to celebrate as a community that makes my role here at Lord's Love all the better, uh, the joy of coming together as a church family. Uh, So if you weren't planning to come out to the barbecue, I hope you will uh, come out. Uh, Roy and the team have been working very hard, so thanks, Roy. I think he's probably downstairs uh, prepping some more, but it's going to be a great time. Uh, Just If you're not sure, you walk up Fraser Street, turn left on 43rd when you see the field, and you'll see us setting up tents, or if you choose to go this way, uh, it's the next street, and you turn right, and the same thing. Uh, You hit a field, and we will be there. Uh, For those of you that have also asked me, uh, we have a prayer retreat happening this coming Saturday. It's long. You're like, wow, 9.30 to 5 p.m. Like, I'm not as holy to pray for uh, that long. You know what? No, it's not intimidating at all. First of all, the day's broken up, so there's food uh, and other things uh, that happen. But really, it's a day, not just for us to pray together, though there'll be an opportunity at the end to do a prayer walk in the community, but for you to spend some time with God. Uh, really resting, uh, discerning, praying, uh, seeking his will. Maybe you're going through a rough time or you need to discern a certain decision in your life or you're feeling disconnected from God. This is really not intimidating. You come on out, it's guided. Uh, There's our book written for it and you follow it and we'll find a quiet place in the church and uh, we're all going to practice uh, the uh, discipline of praying together. Okay, so uh, we're continuing on on our series uh, called Living Life As, and I can't remember what number this is now, but uh, our series is going to take us all the way to Labor Day long weekend, uh, which is September 3rd, 4th, 5th, something like that, that weekend, where we're going to end the series talking about uh, the call of work and calling. Uh, so that's what we're going to end with. Today's on the topic of marriage, uh, which you probably figured out from the passage that Evelyn uh, ha- has read. 
So we, we've really uh, come quite far. We start talking about friendship, and then we talk about singleness, and uh, then we talk about dating. Uh, Pastor Howard last uh, two weeks ago talked about sexuality, and then we took a little bit of a break. Uh, last week we had Frankie, the missionary, uh, aviation missionary, intense stories flying into the jungle, engines failing, and people coming, right? Like we, 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 we heard that last week, and we're continuing on in this series as we learn about the different relationships that we have today with the topic of marriage. And there's a new, uh, not new, there's a TV show that our family has been watching because being a family of five now with three kids, we opt for sometimes the most easiest kind of family time together. Uh, even for screen time, we try to do it together. Uh, so we've been watching this show called World's Toughest Race, uh, Eco Challenge Fiji. Anyone has ever seen that? I think it was on Disney Plus for a while and then it's now on Amazon Prime. Uh, it's hosted by Bear Grylls. If you go to the next slide for me, uh, it, it's hosted by Bear Grylls, and it's 1,000 teams from around the world applied for this uh, contest, but only 66 teams made it through, uh, and 66 teams of four. And the whole premise behind it is that it's five stages, 671 kilometers of racing, uh, 24 hours a day, except for certain portions where it's too dangerous, like you shouldn't build a raft uh, into the rapids at nighttime <laughs> and, and go. Uh, so they kind of limit it limit there. But uh, teams of four, uh, all four team members have to make it across the finish line in order for you to win. Uh, so Team New Zealand, uh, they finished, we have some people from New Zealand here. Team New Zealand uh, won uh, the race in a time of 141 hours and 23 minutes of racing. Uh, racing through rivers like that, building their own raft, climbing a cliff, uh, mountain biking, except most of the part was too muddy, so they had to carry their bike for most of the way. And then Team Canada came in second, so kind of win and win here, right? Uh, Team Canada came in second just an hour later, 142 minutes, uh, 42 hours uh, or so. And what's fascinating is that out of the 66 teams, a third of them didn't make it. They opted out because they had things like trench foot, for being wet, their feet being wet all the time, sores, they had to get out. Um, there was one team that climbed that top right picture that you see here. It was Team Japan, and then they're like, we can't walk anymore because our shoes don't fit our feet because they're so swollen, so we're going to get choppered out. Uh, but it's interesting that, they, that only 22 teams uh, made it out of the 66. And there's an article that was written by Jim Haggard, and he's, he writes about the seven traits that gets teams through tough challenges like this, uh, when you have trench foot and leeches on your body and you're hungry. And the seven, he writes this, how do you teams make it through? Well, you park your differences, you focus on what needs to be done, you take time to share in the joy of the experience. A lot of times you're panning uh, the video showing teams laughing even though they're freezing, uh, swimming together. Or number three, you don't criticize other team members, but even though you do it in a constructive way, you don't do it behind their back, but you say it in an upfront kind of way. Number four, you're committed to the team. You know the team of four here. You're, you're in this all together. Number five, you maintain, again, a sense uh, of humor even when everything seems lost. Number six, you celebrate your wins however small. Or number seven, you support one another in both good times and bad. Now, how, no matter how challenging this eco challenge is, 671 kilometers of pure pain, I don't know why anyone would do this. Like there's one team of ex-Navy SEALs, there's one team that does ultra marathons, which is 42K plus on the weekend for a normal jog. Like that's what they find fun. Uh, but as, as much of a challenge as this is, I want to think about marriage in that sense, right? Like marriage is a challenge. 
Marriage is a grind at times. Marriage is difficult, and especially not just uh, surviving through marriage, because many marriages don't survive, but thriving marriages are even more difficult. They don't, thriving marriages, they don't happen by pure accident. And I would argue that there are more forces going against your marriage, for those of you that are married today, forces like our own selfishness, our human sin and brokenness and outside forces that distract us. There's more forces that want to take you away, that want to break your marriage than there are that unify our marriages. And a lot of marriages, they, they, the marriage issues, and I know this for a fact from my own marriage, comes from not understanding each other, from this miscommunication. And there's a book written by a, a couple, uh, Bill and Pam Farrell, called Men Are Like Waffles, Women Are Like Spaghetti. Maybe some of you have read that uh, before, where the premise of the book is that men, generally speaking, think in boxes, right? I am in my sports box right now, so that's all I'm thinking about at this moment. So when you ask me, honey, what do you want to eat for dinner? I'm not thinking about that because I'm in my sports box or I'm in my work box or I'm in my family box, whatever box it is. But as the book argues, women are like spaghetti where everything is interconnected. Everything is interconnected. Like when I'm watching an action like Marvel film, Jess sometimes will reach over and feel my pulse. What are you feeling right now? I'm not feeling anything. I'm just watching this. I'm just watching Iron Man playing around at this moment. There's a quote in this book that says this, most men have boxes in their waffle that have no words. There are thoughts, but they don't always translate into words. Not all of the wordless boxes have thoughts, however. There are actually boxes in the average man's waffle mind that contain neither words nor thoughts. To help relieve stress in life, your husband will park in one of those boxes to relax. That might be new for you women out there that are learning about this. Men have boxes. Yes, it's true. There are men, most of us, some of us, most of us, I would say, have these boxes that we sit there and we're all just thinking about nothing. Think about nothing at all. So Jess, my wife, will come over and be like, Doug, what are you thinking about right now? And in that moment, I'm like, say something intelligent. Don't tell her nothing. I start panicking in my heart because I should be feeling something. I want to connect with her. I should be thinking something. So I say something like, ah, I'm hungry. I feel hungry right now. That's a feeling, right? I feel hungry. I have feelings, as I say to my wife. I feel hungry right now. And my wife often be like, what? How does that make any sense? How can you have a nothing box? Because in my mind, there's always something going on. I'm thinking about the next thing. I'm thinking about what happened two weeks ago that you did to me. <laughs> that's, that's bringing me to this moment here. And what's kind of helped me, if you're actually very boxy, if you're, you're a man here and you're very boxy and you're thinking, what helped me in this book? was that if you're really objective and you need a solution in the moment where someone needs to talk to you, your wife needs to talk to you, what's the objective there? And I shared this with Jess, and she's like, after 10 years, this is what you've learned. Okay, it might not blow you away. But the objective in the moment when your wife wants to talk to you, you know what the goal is, what the solution is, what the objective is? It's to listen. <laughs> after 10 years of marriage, that's what I've discovered. In those moments where Jess is wanting to talk to me. I'm like, there's nothing that she wants me to do in that moment but to listen. That's the goal. That's the objective. Some of you men are taking notes. Listen, <laughs> right? Write that down. Put that in your wallet, okay, every time you see it. And wives, sometimes you're thinking, like, what is he thinking? He's in this box. There's nothing box. What am I going to do here? Sometimes as women, you're going to be a little bit more patient with us men. You're going to need to stay in the box just a little bit longer so that he can discover his feelings. 
All right, help them to peel off the layers to discover those feelings. So why am I going on and on about this? It's because men are like waffles and women are like spaghetti. We're different. We're wired differently. That causes us really to communicate differently. That causes us to miscommunicate. And this morning, in this uh, short time that we have together, I don't want to talk about marriage in this kind of conceptual way uh, where it's like, you know what, like this is biblically what we learn and know. Yes, we got to go to that and kind of talk about it in a very high level. I want to get really practical. Like how we know, like, like, like and we, we, we all understand that like marriages, in order for marriages to thrive, there needs to be humility. There needs to be the selflessness, this giving up of ourselves to the other person. You need to forgive. And there needs to be this openness and vulnerability. We also know that maybe we know that no one is perfect, so you'll never marry actually the right person. Uh, you'll never marry the right person because everyone's broken. Every person is sinful and, and makes mistakes. And though there, but at the same time, you're like, well, does that mean I can marry whoever I want? No. Even though you never marry the right person, there are some people that are more wrong for you. Uh, they are more wrong for you than others. We also know whenever we have an issue in marriage, it's never really about the issue, is it? It's about the issue underneath the issue, that there's an unmet kind of, uh, unmet need in that issue. There's a past pain that hasn't healed, that hasn't been addressed. And some of us know that marriage, as we'll see today, is never meant to complete us. Marriage is never meant to complete us because fulfillment can only be found in Christ alone. And it's not fair to give that to your spouse. If you're expecting your spouse to complete you, to fulfill every single need, that's an that's an unfair expectation that they would, they, that they're not expected to fulfill and they'll never fulfill. It's only setting yourself up for disappointment because the fulfillment of our deepest needs can only be met in Christ. Yet, I want to say this, even though we know all of this and we know maybe the reason why God has created marriage and how a marriage is supposed to exemplify who this God is, how many of us, and me included, we struggle though right in our marriages. Like the stats for divorce outside of the church and inside the church really aren't that different. Why is that? Maybe it's because as a church, we also struggle to communicate well with our spouses. We also struggle wrestling with our spouses as they go through, as maybe both of you go through mental health struggles and issues, or maybe issues of infidelity or parenting problems or abusive behavior, financial stress, intimacy, intimacy issues. These aren't issues that are only out there, but they're within the church. So let's talk about that. How do we, how do we talk about that in a healthy way? Well, how, what does God call us to do in those moments? And the big idea for us this morning is simply this, that holy marriages are the happiest marriages. Holy, holy marriages are the happiest marriages. And what do I mean by this? What do I mean by holy? Holy meaning set apart. And I'm using this word holy to mean anything that's set apart according to the way that God has designed it to be. Right? So holy marriages are, God, are happy marriages because God designed marriage to be a certain way. And if we align ourselves the best, uh, closest to what God has called us to be in marriages, those are the happiest marriages. Those are the marriages that causes, that have experienced the most thriving. So we get an understanding for many parts of life in the passage that Evelyn just read for us. And one of the parts, one of the roles that we have in life uh, that we get to understand a little bit more is marriage. And we read in, passage, in this passage, like in verse 4, how God was intentional in what he created. We, we see here in this passage that God gave an order to things in the beginning. I know Pastor Howard spoke on that 
uh, on, this, uh, on this sermon on sexuality, but God gave us an order to things in the beginning that this is how things ought to be. We read in verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And jump to verse 7, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and a man became a living being. So we see here, God made an order to things, how things ought to be. I'm not going to go on about that, but he has set things to be. He is intentional in what he created and how he created it and the relationships that were formed and the way that the world was made. He was intentional with it. But we also see that there were boundaries that were set in the beginning from the creation. God also put healthy boundaries and thriving happens when we listen to what God says. We see these healthy boundaries. For example, in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. We just talked about this in our community learning class, that work isn't bad because God worked for six days. So work is actually a good thing, but, it le but we need to understand it in a healthy way. But in verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So we see here that there's a garden planted, and in the middle, there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then God said, you can eat from any tree except from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This may be a little bit of a tangent here. Do you ever, ever wonder why? Why did God put that tree there to begin with then? You know, I, I don't believe that that tree actually was any more mystical or magical. Like, you ate the fruit as, like, you know, a special kind of fruit uh, that they have there. It had these special kind of qualities, these physical qualities, like miraculous kind of fruit. <laughs> when you ate it, they just kind of came to know. I actually think what happened here is that it's unlikely that the fruit carried any kind of physical qualities, but it's actually about choice. That there's a tree planted there so that there can be choice. Uh, that if the, everything was good, if there was nothing else to choose from, if they couldn't dis possibly disobey God from their choices, then there wouldn't be disobedience to begin with. There wouldn't be this choice to begin with. So this tree was there so that Adam and Eve can choose. Yet there's boundaries to this kind of thriving here. Thriving happens when we listen to what God says because when they died, when they ate the fruit, they didn't die physically but spiritually when they're kicked out of the garden. So we know there's a way that things ought to be, and God has set boundaries around how it ought to be. This means we can't go around defining what relationships look like, what marriages look like, because it's already been defined for us. God has already set that emotion in place. God has the final say there. And I know Pastor Howard spoke on that already a couple of weeks ago on sexuality, and he brought up form versus function. And this form versus function is important for us to understand. Uh, in marriage as well, because this, this phrase, form follows function, was big in the late 19th century and early 20th century in the world of architecture. In the world of architecture, because form follows function, it refers to how the shape of a building or an object should primarily be related to its intended function or use. So there's a reason why a factory is boxy, because that's what, could you, what you could fit the most in it for, for, for how a factory ought to work. The way that the form of the uh, the form of the building serves the function that it has. So we can argue this Lewis guy, this Lewis Sullivan, who is an American architect that coined form follows function. We could say he doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, we could argue here that God, he doesn't know what he's talking about, though he created the cosmos. This, you know, his resume is a little bit bigger and better uh, than mine. We can argue that God doesn't know what he's talking about. But we would all agree that chairs 
For example, the pews that you're sitting on were made for a purpose. Yes, I could use a chair as a ladder. Uh, yes, I could use a chair for many different purposes, like doing, what do you call this? I don't exercise for working the traps. Um, using the chair in that way is doing dips. Dips, that's what it's called. You can argue about that, but we would say the chair was primarily made for sitting on. The chairs were formed to function as a seat. So what's the form and the function of marriage? That's what I'm getting at. What is the purpose of marriage? What is the function of marriage? We see here in this passage that was read that we see the word suitable helper uh, 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 written down, read for us a few times. This word for suitable helper in Hebrew is ezer, which means the ones who help. So it's not just someone that comes alongside to be an aid, but this word for ezer is used for God himself, mostly in the Psalms. That whenever you read of God being our helper, being our strength, that's the word ezer here. That the form and the function, we see, well, okay, we get this woman that's made from the rib of a man, and then she's a suitable helper and an ezer, a helper for the man. So is that what marriage is about? Just two people helping out each other. Is that what marriage is about? But we continue reading in verse 21 here. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. I often joke with this, I probably stole this from another sermon, that often when couples are hugging each other and snuggling, that is actually the ribs coming back together. That's why it feels you know, so, so right in that moment. Verse 22, then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he had, take that, he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. Verse 23, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his a wife, and they become one flesh. So what is the form and the function of marriage? I read this passage a few, uh, on, that, on that sermon on singleness, that if marriage shows the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us its sufficiency. We talked about how singleness, singles that live content in Christ, they show us what this life looks like that abides in Christ, this future state that we're all are called towards in Christ. But if singleness shows us its sufficiency of the gospel, how perfect it is, how it is enough, marriage shows us the shape of the gospel. It shows us what the gospel looks like. So maybe if we're called to not just be happy in marriages, but through this holiness, to be like God, maybe we start getting the idea of what marriage is about, that the form, maybe it's to actually look like God, that that's the purpose of our marriages. Or like this quote from Gary Thomas in Sacred Marriage, which, by the way, all these books I quote from, I recommend for you to read. He says this, what if God didn't design marriage to be easier? What if God had an end in mind that went beyond our happiness? our comfort and our desire to be infatuated and happy as if the world were a perfect place. What if, catch this, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy, which is where I stole the big idea from, uh, really. What if God designed marriage? That's the form. And also leads to the function that the purpose of marriage, as another, uh, as another author calls it, that marriage is actually a crucible that couples are placed into where we're grinded up and grinding each other out, <laughs> shaping each other to be more holy, to be more like God. What if that is the form and the purpose of marriage? You see, we read this in Ephesians 5. If you, I don't have a 
a time to read through the, all of chapter 5, but it talks about beginning a wife submitting to their husbands. And often in our day and age, we're like, what? Submission? That's a negative word. But Paul follows it up right away in verse 25, how husbands, we ought to love our wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That in a way, if husbands, we live out our lives, giving up ourselves and our lives, everything about us for our spouse, it makes it easier for them to follow makes them want to love you more and respond to you. But we read this in verse uh, 31. I read this in verse 31. After all that, after husbands loving their, lo their wives as Christ loved the church, uh, and after husbands we give uh, up our own bodies uh, for the sake of the church, for the sake of our wives, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Quoting back to this Genesis verse, and then Paul adds this in verse 32. This is a profound mystery. It's a profound mystery. I'm not talking about marriage, per se, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. <laughs> so how does Paul, he's talking about marriage, talking about husbands and wives sacrificing for each other, and all of a sudden he turns towards Christ and the church. Is it possible that our marriages aren't just to make us happy, aren't just to give us joy, aren't just to give us all the cuddles, be like, yeah, I love cuddling, it makes me feel good. But whatever marriage is, the form and the function and the purpose isn't just for happiness, but for holiness, for shaping us and each other to be more like Christ. Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, says this, the reason marriage is so painful and yet wonderful is because it is a reflection of the gospel, which is painful and wonderful at once. The gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same, very same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And this is the secret, that the gospel of Jesus and marriage explain one another. That when God invented marriage, he already had the saving work of Jesus in mind. Through marriage, the mystery of the gospel is unveiled. That is it possible that through our marriages, that we display what the love of Christ looks like? The sacrifice, that our marriages actually point to Jesus and his love and his gospel, that we don't even need to use words, even though I believe proclamation is needed in the gospel, but our marriages by simply, simply the way that we are, the way that we sacrifice for each other, the way that we love our spouses, in and it of itself is an explanation and the sharing of the gospel. Is that not beautiful? Is that maybe, perhaps I'm suggesting for us, the form and the function of marriage. But here's the thing. Honest talk, real talk. I look at my own marriage, it's not often like that. I know that my marriage is meant to display the gospel, but Jess and I have our fair share of fights. I wish that I was more humble. I wish that I was more patient. I wish I was more kind and loving all the time. I wish that we would share with each other more be more vulnerable with each other. I wish that we would open up the Bible and read the word more and do devotions more, that we would pray more together, that we'll sit and know everything about each other, but life often gets in the way and life isn't like that. And it leads to down this path of shame and guilt. And I believe that's actually what it comes down to. Why many times marriages don't thrive, the Bible actually has the answer for us. It's actually because of shame. The shame causes this divide between us and our spouses. The Bible tells us that it has to do with shame. The very last verse that was read in verse 25, which is often, as I refer to it, a giggle verse, 
uh, people laugh and throw, kind of throw it away because Adam and his wife were both naked. He, you know, and, but it's very important. At the end here, they felt no shame. They were naked and they felt no shame. There was nothing between them, literally, not even clothes. And they felt no shame with one another. What happened in Genesis 3, if we read our Bibles carefully, right when they sinned, when they took on the fruit, what was the first thing that they did? They put clothes on. They put clothes on because there's this shame. There's this hiding. There's this separation. And they hid behind a bush. And then God comes and is like, I don't know where you are, guys. You know, I know everything. But I don't know you're hiding behind the bush <laughs> right now. But it was this shame later on that, 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 that was what they did that caused this shame. That's, there was this cycle of guilt and shame that continue on this breaking up of this relationship that God never intended it to be. Annette Kammerer, uh, she wrote an article in Scientific American. Uh, she called it the scientific underpinnings and impacts of shame. And the highlights of the article, I put it up there if you can read it. It says this, we feel shame when we violate the social norms we believe in. At such moments, we feel humiliated, exposed, and small, and are unable to look one another, another person straight in the eye. We want to sink into the ground and disappear. Shame makes us direct our focus inward and view our entire self in a negative light. Feelings of guilt and contrast result from a concrete action from which we accept responsibility. Guilt causes us to focus our attention on the feelings of others. So here's the thing. Because of this brokenness, because of the mistakes, because marriages aren't perfect, because people aren't perfect, it causes us into this, this cycle of shame and guilt that if we don't address it, it actually causes this divide that even though physically we could be together as spouses, that spiritually, emotionally, we're so separate from one another. Could it be possible because we haven't addressed these deeper hurts and pains that we're not only shameful to share our struggles with other married couples, but we're shame, too ashamed to share with our spouses. We're too ashamed of what he or she would think of me when I make that mistake. And shame will cause us to do a lot of nasty things. We'll fight our way out of responsibility, which is what Adam did. The woman made me do it. The woman made me eat the fruit. Well, <laughs> she really didn't, but that's shame coming in. We deflect and we deny accountability. We can't admit what we have done is wrong. And there's no empathy in this shame because we lash out or we, we either lash out at the other or we disconnect from them. The shame, it takes us to these dark places and leads to the marriage to be in this dark place. <clears throat> you need to break from the shame. That's the key here. Maybe that's the action item or that's the, practical, the practical step here that we need to break free from shame in order to enjoy greater intimacy with our spouse. But how do we do that? How do we break free? Well, the key to breaking the power of shame and guilt, <coughs> excuse me, is the power of the work of Christ. That in these moments, it's not just for you to press in harder or to try harder, to love your spouse harder. The key to breaking the power of shame and guilt, whatever it is that you're wrestling through, whatever it is that haunts you from your history, whatever it is that you're wrestling through at this very moment that you're making you shrink on the inside feeling alone, the power is not in yourself, but is in Christ. It is what he has done for you. Because what's creeping into your marriage this morning, this week, if you're married, that's causing this shame? How do you get rid, rid of this shame that you have? It's not to hide more, which is what our culture kind of shares. 
right? Hide your garbage, sweep it underneath the rug, don't share it with anyone, that's your own business. No, the biblical way is actually to pull it and bring it into the light. Have nothing to do with Ephesians 5. Interestingly, just before the passage about marriage, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. That's actually shameful when you don't bring it up. That act is shameful. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that's illuminated becomes a light. So here's the challenge for us, that Perhaps there are some things in our marriage that we're too ashamed to share with our spouses. That addiction that you have, the struggle that you have, that thing that you did, the feelings that you really have about your family in this moment that you feel like you can't bring up to your family, that's actually causing a wedge in your marriage that's leading not to good places, a past mistake. The way forward is actually to, in the safety of your marriage, the safety of you two to bring it, bring it up and to share and to have those deep moments of bonding. I remember I went to the marriage workshop or marriage conference up at Whistler, Jess and I, and she was like, let's do this. And she's like, you better take this seriously because I laugh way too often. And one of the exercises was we had to rub, lead, uh, read, uh, write and read a love letter uh, to our spouse. And we had to sit there uh, and read what I wrote. I'm like, this is so awkward. You know, this is for you to read. <laughs> this is really awkward as I'm reading it. And I'm trying not, not to laugh. But it's those kind of moments. What was that I was experiencing? It was actually this shaming guilt, even in reading how I, want, how I feel about my own wife. That in a strange way leads to the shaming guilt that you don't want to be too, too overly affectionate to your spouse. But Tina Konkin, in this online article for Focus on the Family, she writes, how do you have a shame-free marriage? It's actually three things. It's reveal rewrite, renew. You reveal. You can't change and heal from what you don't acknowledge. So simply bringing it up with your spouse in the safety of your marriage, that's maybe your first step to reveal. If you want intimacy with your spouse, you have to reveal the deepest, darkest places of you. And it has to be safe. You're not going to be laughed at. You're not going to be challenged. You're not going to be brought up as ammo later on. Ha! I'm going to use that later in a fight. Because I know that's your weakness. No, in the safety of your marriage, you reveal because you can't be healing without revealing. Secondly, you rewrite. You see yourself through a different lens. And this rewriting starts by knowing your identity, knowing who you are, knowing who you are in Christ, knowing uh, what your marriage means and what marriage is about, and knowing who the other person is and who you are in society. The rewriting starts by seeing yourself through the right lens, not of culture, but through Christ and who he says you are. And lastly, to renew by bringing your shame ultimately to Christ. You're shaming your guilt, whatever, whatever mistakes, whatever your past is, whatever you feel ashamed of, you bring that to Christ because God, this is the truth and this is the gospel here, that God is big enough to handle all your deepest and darkest fears and frustrations. He's big enough to handle your deepest fears, your deepest pains, your suffering, that past of yours that you're too ashamed of to bring up. He's able to go back and heal and transform you now and to make you new and walk in this new light that he calls us to. He is able. If he is able to create the cosmos, what can't he do in our lives? If he can create the light that we see in all the world, can't he not create a little spark in your life during the most painful in deepest and darkest times. God is big enough to handle everything that you have to throw at, at him. So I'm praying for all of us 
that whether you're single at this moment, whether you're dating, or whether you are married, that in this moment we'll come to Christ and know that we can bring our shame and our guilt and everything before him. Because the strongest marriages really are made up of two people that are strong in their relationship with Christ. As they, and they both come together. They both come together and meet Christ together in that way. Holy marriages are happy marriages. And if we follow Christ and follow God and what he has called us to be and the ways that he has set, set the world in motion and the order that he set the world to be in, that is where thriving is. And I'm praying that you would accept that invitation. And this morning we come to communion, as I segue. If you don't have your communion cups, maybe you want to raise your hands, you want to join us. If you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you want to join and celebrate together. Uh, please raise your hand and our, our greeters will come and give one to you.